As we prepare to read, hear, respond to the word of God, let us turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer in Christ. Lord, we desire that our faith would grow into a beautiful flower and produce fruit in our lives. And so as you promise that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish your purposes, we ask that you now would move among us with power and grant that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs may hear and grasp your holy word with diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture passage this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. On the heels of Pentecost, Luke, the author of Acts, gives us this glimpse of what life looked like in the community of believers in these final verses of chapter 2 of Acts. He shares with us this insight not only to reveal how the church was continuing to grow and be built up after Pentecost, but he shares with us these things to help us to understand what is going on within the life of the gathered church, even as they are being sent out into Jerusalem to give faithful witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus, which he is going to cover for us in the next few chapters. This glimpse that Luke gives us here in just a few verses is fascinating because it reveals to us the early church's devotional practices. There are four practices specifically identified at the beginning of this passage, verse 42, which tells us that the community of believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These are practices that were not only significant in the early church, but they are practices that are still significant in the Christian life today. They mark the Christian life today. Recognizing their importance then, we want to make sure we cover them well. Therefore, I'm only going to get into the first of the four this morning, the apostles' teaching. 
But before we can even get into this practice, we need to know two things. First, we need to get the full weight of the word devoted here. They devoted themselves to these practices. Devoted is a word in our culture that seems to have a somewhat loose meaning. There might be a lot of things that we would consider ourselves devoted to. We might speak of, for instance, our devotion to our employer. I've heard people talking about being devoted to the company or business they work for. And people who say this generally do commit themselves to working diligently and taking pride in their work. That is, unless an offer comes along that entices with higher pay, better hours, or a more prestigious title. Devotion apparently comes at a specific price. But hey, we also hear a lot about how employers are devoted to their employees. But that isn't necessarily always the case now, is it? So we might use devoted a little differently than Luke uses it here. You see, even while we cheapen the word devoted, the word translated as such here from the Greek is a pretty forceful word. It means to persist obstinately in. Obstinate is a word that might come to my mind when thinking about trying to get my three-year-old son to eat his dinner. It doesn't matter what reward I offer or what punishment I threaten. There are nights when he just won't eat. He is wholeheartedly committed himself to not eating. (laughs) And this isn't just obstinance in verse 42. This is continual obstinance. The Greek word appears here as a present participle. For those of you who uh, don't know grammar, which I wouldn't know what that meant, It denotes continued action. So we need to see here that these practices of the early church that Luke lists are carried out with great intensity. They are done with regularity. And they are accomplished despite difficulty. This is what devoted means here. And it should be characteristic of our own practices as we seek to model our life after the example the early church has set for us. Second, all of these practices are done within community. The picture that is painted for us, not only here in Acts 2 and throughout all of Acts, but really throughout the whole of the New Testament, is one of the importance of the community of faith. As one biblical scholar puts it, according to the Bible, the entire Christian life, including spiritual growth, Battling sin and Satan and serving God are intended to be done in community. So from the very birth of the church, we are seeing this. Community is an essential value. And this is so because we have been called to worship and serve a God who exists in community within himself as one God existing in three persons. And this God does not merely provide salvation to us. He seeks to draw us into fellowship with himself and shape us in his own image. Scripture makes clear that when we are brought into union with Jesus Christ, by faith, we are brought into union with one another. 
By coming into fellowship with him, we are brought into fellowship with each other. We'll come back to this in the weeks ahead as we specifically discuss the church's practice of fellowship. But even while we acknowledge that there is a focus on community here, you can't properly fellowship alone after all, we also might overlook or neglect this reality as pertaining to all of these practices listed here. It would be fairly easy for us who live in a very transient, individualistic society to read this text and minimize the importance of community and make it as much as possible about individual, personal, private devotional practices. And because of our context, we probably naturally lean toward an individual reading of this text and others like it. Let me ask you something, and I want you to answer honestly in your heart. When you think of devotional spiritual practices, say reading and studying the Bible and prayer, do you usually primarily think of these practices as private or communal? My guess is, and I might be wrong, that we generally tend to think of these as private devotional practices. So we need to be able to admit to ourselves that perhaps the idea of community that this passage is presenting us with is a bit strange to us. And it might make us a bit uncomfortable because we are used to living very private lives without interference from others. We base our decisions on what is going to be personally convenient or advantageous to us as individuals. And I think that we have seen this play out in the consumer mindset that many bring to the church in America. So in the context we find ourselves in, in this culture, people have claimed to be Christian who see no importance in participating in Christ's body, the church. After all, we can do things like pray and read scripture and worship in private. And what this sort of attitude reveals is a serious lack of understanding, not only about how vital the community is in our own faith, but also the importance of our personal contribution to the household of God. What this passage reveals very clearly is that believers in the early church committed themselves to community life with a single-minded focus because they understood differently the place and importance of community in the life of the believer. As one commentator articulating the teacher of Scripture puts it, community life is not an option for a Christian, but a basic aspect of Christianity. And this is exactly what this passage is communicating. So with that, let's begin our look at these practices. The, and the first practice that Luke tells us that this young Christian community devoted itself to was the apostles' teaching. A very basic question we could ask at this point is what exactly is the apostles' teaching? This basic question has a pretty simple answer. The apostles had been with Jesus and had been chosen by Jesus as his disciples for the very specific purpose of being able to give witness, not only to his death and resurrection, but also to his life and ministry. 
Jesus had spent three years with them, ministering among them, performing miracles, giving commands, teaching and providing instruction, sharing parables, modeling a life of faithful obedience. And if you recall, before Jesus was crucified, he had promised his disciples that the Spirit would be sent to them in order to help them remember all that he had taught them. Jesus says in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The point of this wasn't just for their personal benefit, but that they might, as his apostles, share these things with the community of faith for the building up of his church. So, in the power of the Spirit, the apostles were now obeying Jesus' commission to them to go out into the world, not just to get people saved, but to make more disciples, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded. Those who had placed faith in Jesus on Pentecost now needed to be discipled in the way of truth. And the Gospels give witness to the things that the apostles were passing along about Jesus' life and ministry. But the apostles are also in the power of the Spirit, helping to provide interpretation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this is what we see in the rest of the New Testament in their writings. The new believers that have been added to the church at Pentecost, who are learning these things for the first time, can have confidence in the apostles' teaching, in their authority to teach as apostles, and with the truth of their testimony, because Luke tells us in verse 43, the apostles were performing many signs and wonders. So these signs and wonders weren't just to get attention, they were authentication that the apostles who were performing them were indeed apostles and bearers of true spirit-given teaching. It's exactly why Luke mentions the signs and wonders here. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul identifies as a true apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, when he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the early church was committed to studying what the apostles were teaching them because they understood that the apostles were teaching in the authority given to them by Jesus Christ. And they were hungry for this teaching, their devotion to the apostles' teaching, their persistence in this practice reveals to us that they craved to know more and more about Jesus Christ, by whom and in whom they had been saved. So we're seeing here what Augustine would later articulate, saying, believe that you may understand. Believe that you may understand. What Augustine meant was that faith in God constantly seeks deeper understanding. This is why the Apostle Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it, you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
Now notice what Peter says at the end here. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The implication is that if you have truly experienced the Lord, if you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, then you will want to know more of him. So Peter indicates the craving to know more and understand more the apostles' teaching, that it's key evidence that one is truly regenerated. And I think that this is why Luke lists this as the very first practice of the community of believers. The, this is the first thing that this young, spirit-filled church does because this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit leads us to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and are claimed by him desire to learn more and more of him in order to know him, to deepen their faith in him, to be faithful to him, obeying what he has commanded and testing all of their experiences against his word. So the question for us is this, what about us? We don't have the apostles with us. How are we to know exactly what the apostles were teaching that we may devote ourselves to it? We can't, after all, come and sit at their feet and hear their first-hand accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, right? But I think we already know the answer to this. We can, in a way, come and sit at their feet and hear their first-hand accounts of Jesus because their teaching has been, by God's grace and goodness, preserved for us. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, states, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is what the apostles sought to do. Not only as they preached and taught, giving witness to the risen Lord Jesus, but as they wrote these letters. This good deposit has been preserved and passed along to us. You have it in your hands. It is beside you in the pew. We have their testimony. We have their teaching in the words of the New Testament. And even as the apostles' words were being written, there is recognition that it is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter, speaking of what Paul had been writing, comments in 2 Peter 3, that there are some things that Paul had written that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then Peter adds, as they do the other scriptures. In other words, there was already in the early church acknowledgement that what Paul was writing was Scripture, God's holy, inerrant, infallible Word. So anyone who claims that we should only be interested in the red letters of the Bible, in the words of Jesus recorded in the New Testament, but not in the words of the apostles, has a serious misunderstanding of the Bible and the place of the apostles' teaching in it. Jesus had given his apostles authority to teach about him, and the Holy Spirit had worked through them to bring this teaching and to authenticate it. So these letters from the various apostles, as well as the Gospels, 
were already circulating around in the early church. It was not difficult then for the early church to compile all of these together into what we have today as our New Testament and to recognize it as authoritative, not only as the words of the apostles, but as the very word of God. For us then, just as the Spirit drew believers to desire to hear the apostles' teaching in the early church, the same Spirit draws believers today to grow deeper in Christ through God's Word in the Bible as we have it today, both the Old and New Testaments, which give witness in their entirety to the person of Jesus Christ. This means that just as it was in the early church, a desire for God's Word is evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. As one theologian put it, the state of grace reveals itself in man by a delight in the word of God, a readiness to grow therein, and an ability to endure the hot sun of adversity and grow stronger in faith. So dearly beloved, there needs to be the question asked among us, is there among each of us a deep desire for the word of God? But not, only, but not all of the apostles' teachings were easy to understand, as Peter acknowledged. And just as new believers in the early church needed help understanding who Jesus was, how the Old Testament was to be interpreted in light of him, what they were called to do as his people, so do believers today need help understanding the Bible. It can be a strange and unfamiliar book. What are we to make of it? How are we to know how to rightly handle the word of God? And the answer lies in this passage. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not simply as individuals, but as a community of faith. It was in community that the apostles' teachings were heard and discussed. It was in community that the apostles' teaching was learned and understood. It was in the community of faith that the apostles' teaching was being applied. It was in the community that new believers saw a love for the apostles' teaching and developed a love for it themselves. And the very same thing should be happening in churches and is happening in true churches around the world today. So there is tremendous importance in studying and meditating on God's word in community. In fact, I don't think that the importance of the community of faith in hearing, reading, and studying God's word can really be underestimated. It is the means by which God reveals himself to us that we might know him in Christ and place our faith in him. It's also the means by which believers grow in relationship with the Lord. Our growth in faith doesn't end when we hear the gospel and believe. Our knowledge of Jesus isn't limited to the fact that he has come according to the scriptures, that he has suffered and died for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. No, this is just the beginning of our faith journey. It brings us into saving knowledge of Jesus, but there is much much more for us to know and understand as we seek to know and love the object of our faith and live in obedience to him. This is why the Apostle Paul puts such a heavy emphasis on the preaching and teaching ministries of the church for the building up of the body in Ephesians 4. Listen to what Paul says. And he, God, 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul is speaking here to the importance of the community in growing up believers in faith. And the apostles' teaching is right at the center of it. This is what provides us with knowledge of the Son of God. This is what keeps us from being carried away by false doctrine. This is the truth that we speak to one another in love to correct each other and to encourage each other. And so we need to note a few reasons why it is vital that God's word not only needs to be read and studied, but needs to be read and studied within community. So first, reading and studying scripture in community creates unity within the body of Christ, which works to build up the body of Christ. And we can see how in the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, the dividing walls between believers are leveled. Common, our common fallenness is acknowledged. And our common faith in Christ Jesus is confessed. When we read and study Scripture in community, we are together convicted of sin, built up in faith, encouraged to obey God's word, and strengthened for his service. When the church is gathered around God's word in this way, it serves to give faithful witness to God in Jesus Christ through his church, which brings glory to God. Second, as it brings about unity, reading and studying scripture in community helps to provide accountability. Helps to provide accountability. As the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we read scripture together in community and wrestle with its instruction to us, it is much easier for us to hold out God's truth for one another, to approach each other about areas where we see each other falling short, to confess our sins to one another, and to challenge each other to obey its instruction. This is how we stir up one another to love and good works. And in reading and studying scripture and community, I discover that where I am weak, others in the community are strong and vice versa. This helps to not only strengthen us all in faith, but it helps to develop within us humility as we rely on one another. Third and finally, Reading and studying scripture and community provides safeguards to truth and protects, provides protection from error because it prevents individual believers from misinterpretation and falling into false doctrine. It safeguards truth and provides protection from error. 
I think all of us know how easy it is to misinterpret or misunderstand some sections of, of Scripture, especially now that we are 2,000 years or more removed from the original context. Not only are we, for the most part, not reading Scripture in the original languages, but we don't always get all of the idioms or recognize the literary genres or understand the cultural significance of certain references. In other words, if we read and try to interpret Scripture alone, we can easily go astray. Certainly, many of you have been in a Bible study where someone uttered the words, Oh, I always thought that verse meant perhaps that person was you. And if it was, don't feel bad. All of us who read Scripture have that moment because all of us err. These errors, though, go uncorrected if we have nothing and no one to check ourselves against. So God's Word not only gets open to us in deeper and richer ways when we read it in community, but our misunderstandings, our misinterpretations get corrected within community. We're going to see this later in Acts 8 when an Ethiopian unit who is reading God's word acknowledges to Philip that he can't understand the scriptures unless someone guides him. This really is the case for all of us. And so I hope this passage will encourage us today to discern ways that we can better devote ourselves in the firmest sense of the word to the apostles' teachings within the life of our community. This is the example the early church set for us. It's what scripture calls us to as believers. And with this in mind, I think that we should acknowledge this morning that we don't simply have one challenge that we face in our culture, which seeks to minimize in our hearts and minds the importance of community. It isn't just that we live in an individualistic culture and have to fight against its current. We also face a pandemic that has potentially created new habits in our living that might be difficult at this point to overcome. For almost a year now, we have been isolated from one another, trying to slow the spread of this virus. Just recently, we passed a grim milestone in our nation, 500,000 deaths due to COVID. We know acutely the pain that this pandemic has caused within our community. But thanks be to God, the tide seems to be turning. Confirmed new cases are way down. It was reported that there had only been 12 confirmed cases in Washita Parish on Thursday. Only eight confirmed cases on Friday. Many of you here have had COVID. Many of you have received at least one shot of the COVID vaccination series. I'm not a doctor, but this seems to indicate that we are drawing near to the light at the end of the tunnel. And I personally am feeling very hopeful about the possibilities for our community moving forward. But as we prepare for life after this pandemic, we need to be aware that Satan is using it as an opportunity to steal, kill, and destroy. He's using it to sow fear, to create division, to discourage community. There's nothing he wants more than to keep us isolated from one another because apart from one another, we are weak and vulnerable. We must recognize that we are in the midst of very serious spiritual warfare. And I don't think that I can stress strongly enough that COVID is not the only thing that we need to protect ourselves from. 
We have to protect ourselves right now from becoming comfortable with how things have been over this past year, comfortable with our rhythms. We should be feeling the ache of being removed from community, of not being gathered with all the believers on the Lord's day, of not reading and studying scripture together through Bible studies and small groups and Sunday school, of not gathering together for prayer and for fellowship. And we should be asking ourselves, what will it take at this point for us to return? Will it take a vaccination? Will it take doctors and scientists and the government giving us word that we as a society have reached the point of herd immunity? Will it take COVID rates getting to zero? What will it take, brothers and sisters? So I think one thing we need to do this morning in light of this scripture and its call to community is examine ourselves, our hearts, and our minds against God's word. Do our lives reveal any inconsistency in how we are living? Is there inconsistency in how comfortable we are exposing ourselves to infection during the week through our place of employment, through travel, through gathering with those outside of our faith community, through eating outside of our homes, and how comfortable we are exposing ourselves on the Lord's day and in the community of believers. Further, we need to ask ourselves if the fear of death has taken control of our decisions in a spiritually unhealthy way. We should be reminded through this passage that the church devoted themselves to these practices at risk to themselves because Christians do not live in the fear of death. We live in the fear of God, and we seek to be faithful to him first and foremost, trusting our lives to him. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out looking for death, but it does mean that we don't base our behaviors on perfect safety either. If Christians had lived in this way, the apostles would have never sought to fulfill their commission, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. If Christians had lived in this way, believers would not have been gathering together in the first century as we see them doing in our passage this morning. And they wouldn't be gathering in places like China today. So this passage, I hope that it will, in its emphasis of the importance of Christian community, rest on our hearts in the days to come. And I pray that God in these coming days would give us wisdom in how to move forward faithfully. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word preserved through the ages for us. We thank you for its witness to who you are, especially in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the teaching of the apostles by whom we get a clearer vision of your greatness and glory and by whom we are called to great obedience as your children. So grant to us a passion for your word and the life of our community to keep us from error as we read and study it together and as we commit ourselves to its teachings. Build us up in the unity of faith as we together hold fast to its promises. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Dearly beloved, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of 